Each of us has a unique career story to tell. For some, these fly high like rocket launches. For others, they're more like the game of shoots and ladders with advances and setbacks along the way. Either way, we learn countless lessons from these experiences. And that's what we put into the spotlight here at Career Sessions Career Lessons. Join discussions featuring a variety of guests sharing their stories of ups and downs, as well as the secrets of their success and what drives them to continue moving forward. We break down the tools and resources that will help you establish your dream career and realize your professional goals. Here's your host, J.R. Lowry. Hi, I'm J.R. Lowry, and this is Career Sessions Career Lessons, which is brought to you by Pathwise.io. Pathwise is dedicated to helping you be the best professional you can be, providing a mix of career and leadership coaching, courses, content, and community. Basic membership is free, so visit Pathwise and join today. Today, my guest is Dr. Kirsten Ferguson, one of Australia's most prominent leadership experts. She is an Australian company director, the author of two books, a newspaper columnist, a university professor, and an executive coach. She began her career as an officer in the Royal Australian Air Force, and then she went on to become a lawyer and a CEO of a successful global business. In 2014, she was named by the Australian Financial Review as one of Australia's 100 Women of Influence. In 2017, she created the hashtag Celebrating Woman campaign, which led to spinoff campaigns around the world. In 2018, she was appointed acting chair and deputy chair of the Australia Broadcasting Corporation. She's an adjunct professor at the QUT Business School and a Winston Churchill Fellow. In 2023, she was named a member of the Order of Australia and the Australia Day Honours, and she was also recently ranked on the Thinkers 50 list and named the winner of its Leadership Award. Kirsten holds a PhD in Leadership and Culture, as well as Honours degrees in Law and History. She and her family live in the Sunshine Coast of Australia. Kirsten, welcome. Thanks for joining me on the show. Oh, it's fabulous to be here. Great. So let's start with your book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership. So we'll get into the details, but can you give us a brief overview to get us started? Sure. I mean, that's a hard question. You ask any author that and uh, they'll take an hour. So I'll try and do it in a sentence or two. It basically has brought together a framework, a way of thinking about what it is we need from leaders now that is different to what we've seen in the past and a way of balancing our head and our heart. And it's a metaphor, of course, but it's one we all understand. And it really is a book that sends the message that everyone is a leader, not just those that we're used to seeing with formal titles. Right. And you make that point right at the beginning of the book. And certainly, you know, as we met at the Thinkers 50 conference and the first speaker directly about the fact of having a leader identity and that everybody is a leader. And that was one of the things that really stuck with me from the conference from the very start was that idea of leader identity. Yeah. And I think for many people who are formal leaders, it seems so self-evident and that's yeah. hardly anything new, but in fact, it really is for a lot of people who don't recognize that they're leading in their roles because they don't perhaps supervise anyone, but they're still yeah. making decisions and having moments that are leadership moments every day. And every day. we lead in our families and in our communities. So I think we need to do better at reminding people of that. I agree. You start the book actually with a bit of a history lesson on that. My first university degree was in history. I couldn't resist. <laughs> so you go back to the great man theory of the 19th century. So 
starting with that and prior to what you sort of describe in the book as the modern era, what are some of the major periods and schools of thought on leadership that you cover in that intro? You know, I was really debating whether or not to include this because for many, you know, they're only interested in what they're doing today. But for me, as a lover of history as well, I don't think we can really understand how we've got to where we are unless you understand where we've come from. And the great man theory you referenced, that's been an incredibly important legacy in the way we think about leaders, this idea from the 18th century that leaders are are born and not made and only certain people were qualified to be leaders. Fortunately, I think we've rejected that, but you still see elements in the way we think about leadership. But I also talk about the turn of the 20th century, even Mm. business schools in the States were really focused on hard leadership skills because some of those softer skills, which I don't agree with that term at all because they're not soft, but they were focused on those technical skills because, you know, leaders could just intuitively understand how to lead. Otherwise, you then move into World War II and we desperately needed to find some more leaders that weren't just born into it. And I tell the story of most people don't realise that the Myers-Briggs duo was a mother-daughter team right? and how they came up with what is now widely panned as a tool, but at the time it was completely revolutionary and we used that for 50-odd years. And it really opened the door to people other than those formal leaders being someone that might be able to learn to be a leader. And then, of course, you get into the organisation men of the 50s, lots of layers of bureaucracy, long tenures, keep moving through. We get to the 80s, bit of greed is good, people like Jack Welsh slashing and burning organisations. And I think then in our lifetimes, the 2000s, we see authentic leaders come through. And I'm now really interested in what's that next phase? What's the leader we need around us in every part of our lives? You mentioned uh, Myers-Briggs being sort of discounted over the years, I still find it helpful Yeah, in, in describing people. I think people find it helpful because it's just a way of looking at yourself through a tool that's particularly interesting. I think scientists have now been able to say, look, no one fits neatly into a four-letter box, course, and that's yeah. probably the challenge. But I really respect what they did, given where they came from. They were from a Pennsylvania farming family with no university degrees, and they revolutionized this idea of thinking about leadership. So I give them huge props for that. Yeah, unlikely duo to have changed the world of psychology. Very much so. So So you cover the head part of leadership in the second part of the book, and you argue that the research you've done indicates there's four attributes of successful head leadership, curiosity, wisdom, perspective, and capability. Tell us about the research that underpins this. Yeah, I'm really conscious that there's a lot of leadership books that are written by people who have been leaders, and I certainly have been for 30-odd years, starting in the military right through to chairing companies. But I'll read leadership books that are based on anecdote, and this is what I experienced, as though that's a version of leadership. And I think it's one person's experience. It's not necessarily one that others can learn from. And likewise, there's a lot of academic theory books around leadership, but they haven't perhaps had the lived experience. I really wanted to bring the two together, and that's how this research came through. So I'm an adjunct professor at the Queensland University of Technology Business School, And I have a PhD in leadership through them. And so what I started with was sort of a really broad list of 50 or more attributes that you would just widely agree 
were positive in a leader, things that you would want to see. And then that was through literature reviews or through my own reading or analysis and was able to narrow that down to four head and four heart. Now, head and heart is clearly a metaphor, but Mm. it's a term we just understand. You just get what it means. And so when I'm talking about these four head-based attributes, these are all those technical skills that we learn at school or at university or on the job and that are essential for successful leadership, but on and their own are not going to be sufficient for a modern leader. I think if you'd asked me to list four attributes on the head side, I would have come up with one, curiosity. Not sure I would have (laughs) on my own come up with the other three. And you describe it as a superpower. So in what ways is curiosity so important to leadership? It's such a fascinating one. I almost didn't want to include it because it seems so obvious. So to your point, it seems like the one everyone would put on a list. And so naturally you're thinking, well, I'm wanting to create a new idea. Why would I put something like this that everyone would include? But the fact is that's because it is so important. And I'm sure we'll talk about the fact we also don't do it particularly well. But curiosity fuels humility. And for me, humility is a really key aspect of being a leader. And in the research I did to test these, I created a scale, which anyone can go and do. Just visit headheartleader.com. And in the scale and the research with about a thousand leaders, which were the sample group, curiosity and humility were the most highly correlated. So the two Mm. work hand in hand. And that's because if you're curious you understand you don't have all the answers and you're interested in finding things out. If you're humble, clearly you know you don't have all the answers. You're curious to learn. Humility also means you're open to different possibilities, so you're not going in with a really fixed mindset into any given problem. And it allows creativity to flourish. So if you're a leader that's really focused on innovation and new ways of doing things, you have to be able to create curious cultures And finally, there's plenty of research that shows if you're a curious leader, it just leads to better business outcomes. It leads to better decision-making. You're open to diverse points of view. And so there's so much that curiosity brings to us. But whether or not we get it right is another question. Yeah. One of the points you make in the book, which I found a little bit sobering, was that 92% of people value curiosity at work and only 24% of people actually feel curious. It's not great. It's shocking. That statistic is what compelled me to make sure I included curiosity as one of the eight. Because, I mean, it's very clear when you understand why that statistic happens. We're all born curious. I mean, as babies, you're sticking things up your nose just to see what it feels like, what it tastes like. Hopefully you're not still doing that. But we stifle curiosity as we get older because we become set in our ways. So if you've been in a job For six months or longer, you've lost 20% of the curiosity you began with. So imagine people have been in jobs five, 10 years. But if you work in an environment which isn't psychologically safe, where you fear looking stupid and you can't ask a curious question, then obviously that's going to stifle curiosity. If you're someone that makes assumptions, and I know my family has a term for me called mum's disease, And I do not have anything wrong with me, but I do have a tendency when they start to say something that I'll jump to an assumption of where it's going. And worse, I might actually verbalize an answer. That's obviously kryptonite to curiosity. And finally, if you work in bureaucracies, bureaucracies are just classic for stamping out curiosity. So there's lots of reasons why virtually all of us value it, 
but very few of us get to experience it. Yeah. I mean, you talked at one point in the book about W.O. Gore and just fairly radical way to organizing. We heard Gary Hamill speak at the conference. He talked about the principles that underpin the book that he co-wrote with a former colleague of mine, Michele Zanini, called Humanocracy. Again, that talks about some really radical structures that are really grounded in this premise that everybody needs to be curious, right? And you all have a role in shaping the future. And, you know, there's sort of this non-hierarchical, high empowerment sense to it that, to your point, bureaucracies, command and control kind of structures just really struggle with. And I think only very few organizations or leaders are brave enough to try and experiment in that way because it does require a real courage formal leaders to accept that others may well share that power or that decision-making process for the benefit long-term of the organization. And so I think those leaders like Gore and Gore and Associates still operate in the way that he experimented with back in the 50s has shown itself to be incredibly successful. Absolutely. So you talk about wisdom and then you get the perspective. So what does it mean to lead with perspective? Out of all eight attributes, this was, my research found, the most important attribute. Okay. And it correlates most highly with all other seven. So if you score high in perspective, and again, go to headheartleader.com and it's all free. You can find out how you go. It'll show you. Perspective is, in layman's terms, reading the room. It's being Mm. able to bring in those signals and signs and context that you're leading and allowing you to adapt. However, in my research, it also found that you are able to notice who's missing from the room. And that's an incredibly important attribute. So while it correlates highly with all seven, the second most highest correlation was with empathy. So if you're a leader that can lead with perspective, you're not only reading the room, which of course could be a room, but it's more likely your organization, your team, your industry, you're noticing who's missing or who's there and not speaking up. You're truly reading the dynamics of what's going on. And if that means you're noticing that the lived experiences around you are all exactly the same as yours, you're noticing that you don't have any diverse points of view. You're noticing people who aren't challenging you. So leading with perspective is just so critically important to really being able to understand the effectiveness of the way you're leading in that context. Because as you know, I know I've worked in so many different organizations and industries that I've had to change the way I'm going to be most effective, whether I was in the military or in law firms or working with psychologists or on boards. And unless you're reading the room and actually understanding that and I'm curious to what's going to work, it's going to be very hard to be a modern leader. I think it's very true. And one of the points, again, that I took away from the conference was the idea that power is the ability to shape what gets discussed and what doesn't get discussed. Mm -hmm. But to your point, it's also the ability to shape who's in the room and who's not in the room. And if, if you don't think about how to use that in the right way, then you know, it makes it a lot harder to lead with perspective, right? It makes it harder to look at how the organization needs you to kind of bring those inclusive perspectives to bear. Yeah. And even when people are in the room, are they able to contribute? Is it just yeah. the loud voices you're hearing from? So it's a bit like being a conductor and yeah. you need to notice that suddenly the violins, <laughs> just, they're not there for practice. Okay, something's gone wrong or they're there, but we can't hear them. And so you're really trying to make sure that everyone is able to be heard, present. And that takes a lot of conscious effort. 
And yeah. a lot of what we're talking about is this real awareness of the impact of your leadership. You sort of then go into capability. And when you talk about capability, you sort of tie it very closely to the idea of having a growth mindset. Comes from Carol Dweck, one of the influences you cited in the book. How does having a growth mindset shape how you approach creating capabilities as a leader? Yeah, and it's a really good question. And again, it was one that really questioned, do I include it? Do I not? You know, everyone's very familiar with the growth mindset work of Carol. It's it's unbelievably helpful. But yeah. it is essential and there's a difference between being capable at your job and believing you're capable. And I think all of us have had those moments where we question ourselves, where we make a mistake or something goes wrong and it can really throw us. Whereas if you're leading with capability, you do have a strong sense of self-efficacy. And so you see mistakes as opportunities. You know that these are going to happen. You know, I just know for yeah. a fact I'm going to make a mistake at some point today. And it doesn't throw me off completely. It's actually just one of those moments you go, okay, that's happened. This is what I've learned from it. I'm going to try right. not do that again. But, you know, chances are I probably will. And But we keep going. And I think if you're able to lead with capability, you're much more likely to be focused on leading others with capability as well. And I talk about yeah. this idea of growing a family tree of leaders. And that's really <laughs> what our key responsibility as leaders right. is. Of course, we want to do the best job we can do, but we desperately need to be building generations of leaders behind us who feel capable and are capable as well. Yeah. I mean, that's ultimately, that's the legacy, right? I mean, you describe leadership of the book as a series of moments that ultimately leads to a legacy. It could be a positive or a negative one. And yeah. if you're going to create a positive legacy, you, you have to be thinking about your family tree of leaders. Exactly. And I really believe that leadership is simply a series of moments, as you say, and that every moment leaves us this opportunity to have a positive impact on others. And so if you're leading someone who makes a mistake rather than all no leaders that use that moment to slam them and make them yeah. feel less than and belittle them to in this sort of misguided sense that that will help in future. Yeah. Whereas yeah. we all know, having been led by that, using that as an opportunity to say, yeah, I've made that same mistake a bunch of times too. Here's how yeah. I've worked on trying to improve it. How? What are some ways together we can make sure that next time before it happens, let's have a chat about it or whatever it is. There's yeah. just no value in making people smaller if you're yeah. a leader. You brought up psychological safety earlier. And, mm. and to me, that's a, as a leader, I work in financial services. That's super important, right? We're handling literally billions of dollars every day. Mistakes will happen. You have to learn from them. You have to be okay raising them and learning from them, right? And not making those mistakes again. And the worst thing you can do is have a culture where people sweep that stuff under the rug, right? Or are afraid to bring it up for some other reason because then you're not learning, right? And you will make those mistakes again. And, you know, I maybe what was agree a, more. And it's to me, that's yeah. like why that concept. Pretty is, much 101, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Of leadership. I write a weekly column in the major Australian newspapers where I answer questions from readers all over the country about leadership and advice. Anyway, I had someone this week who said that their boss had been continually asking for feedback. You know, please give me feedback. I'm really keen to learn. This yeah. person bravely, bravely said, oh, you know, in some meetings, not all of us feel we can speak up. 
the bosses now excluded them, won't talk to them. And you think, oh, my goodness, now if this boss could only realise, they're now never, ever going to get feedback again. But on the big stuff, like there'll be really big things that people. So to your point, it just takes that one silly, silly move by a leader to undo all of this good work. Yeah. All right. So then you get to the heart part of leadership. You have four key attributes here. You talked a little bit about humility earlier and self-awareness, courage, and empathy are the others. Here, I might have come up with three on my own, so I would do a little bit better on this side. I'm curious whether there was a reason that you chose to cover them in the order of humility, self-awareness, courage, empathy. (laughs) That's a very good question. No, there was not. uh, There's no order to them, no, and there's no priority of any of the eight either. They're all important. We all have and need all of them, but yeah, I haven't been asked that before. I wish I had a smarter answer for you. Uh, just sometimes you just, it could be the order you wrote them down and there could have been thoughts. Yeah. I was just kind of curious whether there was something behind it. Well, now you mention it, I reckon unconsciously, humility to me is probably one of the most important. And then without yeah. self-awareness, which I've listed second, you've got nothing. Right. So maybe I did in some way, but not intentionally. Yeah. Well, to me, humility is, it is the core of modern leadership, right? Because it is yeah. the antithesis of the traditional hero notions of leadership. And for that reason, it probably, for me, I would agree, if you don't get this right, you're not really a solid modern leader. I could not agree more. Humility is one that's so misunderstood as well. I think there's mixed notions that being humble means you think you're less than or you're not good at what you do. Whereas that's, I'm talking about intellectual humility, particularly in this context. And that is so important to understand that you don't have all the answers because the reality is as a leader, you don't. So let's just get that out on the table. You know you don't. Everyone else knows you don't. So there's no point in pretending. And I do think for many decades, centuries, that's been the sense that leaders have had to be all-knowing and have all of the answers. So the real cornerstone of modern leaders is accepting that not having the answers is actually a relationship builder and not relationship destroyer. And for many people, they really have to gently sort of test the waters with that. They find that hard to understand. Yeah. But in a way, demonstrating, even vocalizing that you don't have all of the answers is a way of inviting others into the conversation, Ah. right? And if you believe that like two heads are better than one or three are better than two, then you ought to want to invite other people into the conversation. But I think so often people are just afraid that others will disagree with them and that will undermine their credibility. So they just keep that like completely walled off. And it's unfortunate. It really is because we all know it's so obvious if you've got a leader that's pretending they know the answers, but internally is thinking, I have no idea. I just, I'm going to sort of muddle my way through this. Everyone can see that. (laughs) So If you're the kind of leader that can be vulnerable, and it's not even a matter of saying, I don't know what I'm doing. It's saying in this particular issue, I'm pretty confident that between all of us as a team, we're going to come up with a better answer than just me working on this, because this is something that's unusual. I haven't really seen it before. What do you think, JR? Like, it's not going into a crisis or a battle and throwing your hands up and saying, I don't know what I'm doing. You know, you've got to pick your moments as well. Right. But I think- Truly modern leaders understand when a great deal of humility is going to be incredibly beneficial, particularly you said you work in financial services. When you're dealing with 
high stakes negotiations, when you're trying to navigate difficult stakeholder relationships, sometimes having that level of humility is really what will set you apart from others who are in there really trying to aggressively come up with an outcome. And I know having sat on boards for years, it's a quality that is a skillful quality that can be used really effectively if it's used authentically, but so often is pushed to one side. Self-awareness comes next. One of the things that I think is interesting about self-awareness, this research from Tasha Yurik, I'm not sure if I'm saying her name right, but it sticks with me that 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% of people really are. Again, kind of a sobering statistic. Terrifying. (laughs) Terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. It's unnerving, right? I want to yeah. be 80% that really doesn't get it. It yes, certainly indicates are, an opportunity. For, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in all likelihood, yeah, 80% of us are, are in that category, right? Certainly yeah. indicates an opportunity for improvement. I think it's a reason why feedback is so important. Unless you're calibrating how you're impacting others with people who are prepared to give you feedback and that you're prepared to hear it and ask for it, yes, you're going to blindly, we will be one of the 80% who has no idea what's going on. And, you know, feedback's tough as we know, but if you've people around you who genuinely want to see you succeed, but are prepared to give you the feedback that others won't, then that they are people to keep close. You know, it's not those people who'll tell you whatever you want to hear. And it's not those people who might have a motive to knock you down. It's those people who want to see you succeed, but really are are prepared to tell you what it is you need to hear in that moment and treasure those people. That's for sure. For sure. Courage (laughs) is the next one on your list. It, it, It seems like the hard attribute that most likely would have shown up in a traditional description of leadership. So how is your view of courage more modern? (laughs) Maybe it's not, JR. I'm humble enough to accept that perhaps it's not. But I do think it's one you can't leave out because unless you're not only focused on building cultures of psychological safety at work, but you're also creating personal interactions, which is psychologically safe, then it's very hard for you to lead with courage or for others around you to feel they can as well. And so I just didn't feel it was one that could be excluded because Mm. courage in this context, though, is much more than, you know, those big whistleblower examples we often hear about where someone's brought down an entire corporation. You know, they're the extreme. This is all about everyday acts of courage. And so as a leader, you can role model what this looks like by accepting promotion, not feel you're ready for, or by asking for feedback, hearing feedback, taking it on board, calling someone out for their behavior. You know, there's so many different ways that every day we have that little sick feeling in our stomach, yet we summon up the courage and act anyway. That's really what I'm talking about in this particular context. Yeah. And I think as well, it's partly about moving into the unknown, right? And having the courage to do that. And given things are happening a lot faster in the world these days, and certainly than they were a hundred years ago, and you have to adapt more rapidly. And if you're not comfortable with that, right, with these VUCA environments, as people describe them, it's going to be tough for you. And I think to me, I guess, courage is probably courage, but I think it gets applied to your point in in sort of different constructs than maybe would have been relevant back in the great man era. 
Oh, you couldn't agree more. For many leaders, adapting to a working from home environment required courage. Like Mm. it was just a whole new way of how to lead people. And so agreeing to that requires courage. Agreeing now to how to either get people back in the office or have a hybrid, all of that's taking courage because there's a popular sort of view about from others of where that should go. So I think as leaders, we're constantly having to be courageous in our ideas recognizing that we might be the dinosaurs. It's easy to identify dinosaurs that we work with, much harder to recognize it in ourselves. And I know we're young and sprightly, JR, but believe it or not, there'll be attitudes that we will have that we don't even realize have become somewhat (laughs) old-fashioned. And we need to have the courage to recognize that too. So, yes, it happens in every aspect of our leadership lives. Yeah. Somebody I work with the other day said her team told her never to wave at the end of a Zoom call because if you do, you're like marking yourself as old. And and Oh, no, no. I do this every time I wave. Oh, no. I, I know. It makes you self-conscious about it, right? It's sort of like using punctuation in a text message. I know. <laughs> Well, I also read an article about how the boomers, and I don't, I'm not even a boomer, but we wait a second or so before we film a video, you know, on our cameras, because we wait and check that it's recording. And yeah. that's not something that the younger generations do. They're straight into it. So I'm conscious of that now that there's well, always a good second. They also watch their videos on like 1.2 <laughs> speed, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> So, okay, we've just found three ways that you and I are already dinosaurs. So, yeah, maybe not dinosaurs, but let's say not Gen Z. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Let's leave it at that. Empathy is the last one. This is one that definitely wouldn't have shown up on traditional descriptions. And, And in that sense, it may be the most important of them all. Yeah. And it's not sympathy, not pity, not compassion. This is really about being able to put yourself in the shoes of someone quite different to your own and trying to understand what's going on for them. Because as leaders, I just do not understand how you can make decisions that are going to impact a very wide and diverse group of people unless you understand what the impact of that decision will be for people different to yourself. And so empathy is not about sitting with someone who's feeling anxious and taking on that anxiety yourself. It's It's none of those things, but it is being willing to understand that there are people very different to ourselves and that we need to make sure we're incorporating their experiences into our decisions. To me, you know, gosh, I mean, it's just so different from the traditional way of thinking about leadership where it's like, oh, I'm the boss, so just do as I tell you, right? Here, you much more so got to pull in the whole person, really understand where they're coming from. And it's, I think, a key differentiator from the traditional era. Yeah. But all we've talked about, you know, they're all in balance and the art of modern leadership is knowing what is needed when. And there'll be Mm. times where, you know, to navigate a particularly difficult crisis, you're going to need a huge amount of capability and curiosity and it'll be very head focused. But the art is knowing that in that situation, suddenly it might turn on a dime and you suddenly need to pull out a huge amount of humility and empathy to actually get through whatever it is you're doing. And that's the art. And there's no magic recipe to how and when you draw on each of these attributes. But I do believe that we all have all of them. It's just that some of them don't always show up at work or when we most need them. And I think that's the key to being a modern leader. Yeah. Well, it's a little bit like a mixer, you know, in a a piece of 
audio equipment where you're sort of adjusting constantly the, yeah the, the different microphones the different frequencies and it's like you have this little mixer of these eight functions and obviously some other ones that didn't make your short list that yeah that you've got to kind of turn up turn down shift the mix of over points totally. in time. yeah no and i was going to use that example we talked about humility it might be right up in some conversation but then suddenly you know there's a crisis and you actually need to lead very firmly from the front and humility has no place in that particular context. You need yeah. to read the room and that's where leading with perspective comes in. You know, you've really got to constantly be adjusting those mixes or whatever it is to yeah. work out what's going to be most effective in those moments, yeah. every single moment. Yeah, very true. So that kind of brings us to the notion of an integrated leader, which you obviously that's bringing together head and heart, but also you talk about integrating the way that you are at work and the way that you are outside of work. Why is that so important? A few reasons. Firstly, I do believe everyone has the skills. And let's talk about empathy because that's one, as you said, it wouldn't have been on the lists until recently. And I can think of traditional leaders that I've worked with through my career. I did not witness empathy in their Mm. demeanor or priorities at all throughout their career. Yet when I saw them with their grandchildren or whatever outside of work, full of empathy, they've got, you know, oodles of it. And it makes me or made me realize that it's those skills we have in all areas of our life that actually have a place at work for the modern leader. So the curiosity you might show with your children when they come home from school and you're asking, how was your day and what happened? And you're just asking lots of questions. Well, why aren't we bringing that into our team environments when we're talking with those that we lead? And so I think all of the attributes we have in both all, sorry, in all areas of our lives, whether it's the home or the community, sporting teams, whatever it might Mm. be, volunteering and work, if you can bring those together and be truly integrated in the way you lead, it's not only less exhausting because you're actually just being you. You, But it's also what people want to see. They want to see you. They want to see the human leader, not someone who's an automaton that thinks I need to have all the answers. And I don't think we behave that way at home. So it's kind of this idea of making sure that we don't do that at work either. Yeah. Ultimately, it's hard to be an authentic leader unless you have that kind of integration. Because in, in one place or another, you're putting on an act. Yeah. And I think back to the start of my career, I mean, the military is not a great example because you do put on a uniform. But even when I was in a corporate environment in law firms, I would put my suit on and I felt it's not that I was a different person, but I certainly felt there was a persona I needed to give off in that environment to be effective as a leader. Now, if I could have my time again, it'd be very different. And I'm positive that we're more effective when we're being ourselves because it means that humility is easier to draw on. It means that we're going to be more curious. It's just being yourself. Yeah. You close the book by talking about purpose and you come back to that idea that leadership is a series of moments that add up to your legacy, positive or negative. One of the things I guess that I wanted to ask you about, do you think purpose is more important in today's work world or are we just waking up to its importance? That's a really good question. I think we value individual sense of purpose more than we have in the past. I suspect leaders, you know, the great man leaders, the senior leaders have always felt they've got a sense of purpose, whether it's misguided or not, might be to make more money, but that's their sense of purpose. 
I don't think they ever cared about what their employees felt their sense of purpose was. And for younger generations now, I've got kids who are 23 and 21, they care about their sense of purpose. And I'm not sure I ever did back when I was their age. I'm not sure that it was something that I was ever asked to think about. And so just it wasn't as relevant for me. And I do think now they do. Why do they come in? Are they just coming in for a pay packet? And if so, then as a leader, I think that's a concern. Or are you offering a purpose that really feeds into their needs? I wonder whether, if I think about our generation, not Gen Z, and you go back even further than that, right? I mean, a hundred years ago, you worked to live, right? I mean, you, yeah, you needed to feed the, the family. That was the purpose. Yeah, exactly. And so there wasn't much thought to it. You took the work that was available to you. You probably didn't have much ability to leave your local area. Transport was much more difficult back then. Fast forward to when I started in the workforce in the late 80s, it was a bit of put your head down and just do your job and listen to the yeah. people who are in the senior part of the organization. And what's ironic about now is I think this whole ethos, if you want to call it that, of leadership is changing in the ways that you write about in your book. And yet engagement still sits at 30% every year. You've got all these people who are unhappy. You've got sort of the rise of labor movements again, like particularly in a place like the US where we're seeing more positive views about unions than probably in 40 or 50 years. And it's it's like, we've gotten so much better at the leadership piece, I think, relative to a generation ago. And yet the expectations have just ratcheted up dramatically. It's a little bit like this expectations treadmill, if you will. Yeah. So I think if you were to interview someone who worked at the Ford factory in 1905 and question them about conditions now, you know, they wouldn't be able to believe it or that we they were even being asked about their purpose. Yeah. That said, I think it's a good thing that people's quality of work has improved, their expectations about the way they're respected at work has improved. Every generation looks back and says, well, but back in the day. And so I think we could perhaps be (laughs) showing our age, but I don't know the answer to it, JR. I just know that I think we need to listen to those we lead in every generation because whether we like it or not, they're what make our jobs possible. And I'm very respectful of their different perspectives. Well, it's like, you know, you think back 15, 20 years ago, we were trying to figure out how to integrate the millennials into the workforce. And now they are in the thick of the workforce and we're trying to figure out Gen Z. There's always a bit of this cross-generational understanding that's required. And it comes back to humility, curiosity. It's like they're in the workforce, right? I need to make sure that I understand what their needs are too and not manage them like a somebody who's over 50. And, just, and just, just over 50. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm thinking about how to relate to them and how to make the experience work for them too. Yeah, And it's, it's a challenge, right? It's a constant learning exercise. It absolutely is. And there's no doubt that I'll sometimes hear Gen Z's complaining about something and have that internal thought, are you kidding? When I was a lass, but I hold my tongue because that's not helpful. And we didn't like hearing that, you know, when we were that age as well. So I think that's why reverse mentoring works particularly well. I do think there's a lot of challenges as well, especially cost of living crisis at the moment, particularly for the younger generations that are very real So who knows where it'll all end, but listening and being humble about it and curious, I think is a good 
way to start. Agreed. So you've had a you've had a pretty interesting career yourself, and I share the fact that we both began our careers as Air Force officers. I was an engineer. What about you? I was an administrative officer. I was at a squadron, but like the personnel officer. Yeah. Yeah. So you were really into the organizational aspects of this right from the get-go then? I was. And I mentioned my first degree was in history. I, I did that at our Air Force Academy equivalent. We actually have all three services come together at our Australian Defence Force Academy. But my research thesis was in leadership. So it's funny how, you know, 30 years later, it's kind of come full circle. And you went to law school, you got a law degree. What led you down that path? I had imagined I wanted to do law. I thought that was going to be my career. But I spent a lot of time at the law firm in their executive role, so not as a lawyer before qualifying. And I graduated law and then qualified as a lawyer. But I think I'd spent too much time seeing how they do six-minute timesheets and the way the life of a law firm lawyer and then partner. And so I realized I loved leading. And so I didn't actually end up going and practicing law, but having the degree, I think is fabulous. That is a real balance of my head and heart. The law degree was my head. I then went and did a PhD in leadership and I'd led a group of psychologists and they really fed my heart side of my leadership. You ran a consulting firm at one point, you were the CEO. So yeah, What kind of leader were you back then? It was really interesting because I'd come out of law firms and the military and it was a group of psychologists operating around the world. And so I would have been, I'm sure, perceived by them as all head. It was all Mm -hmm. okay. And it was a for-profit organization. So I was obviously looking at how we can increase profit and all of that. Whereas everyone I was leading, their focus was all about improving the lives of those around us. And it was, you know, their mission and purpose, as we were talking about, was much more around the individual impact they were having. And so I had to learn to really adjust to understand it wasn't that what I was talking about was less important, but the way I communicated and the way I was able to influence change and bring everyone on board, I really needed to adjust. But that organization was one where feedback, it was truly part of the culture. Anyone could offer feedback at any time and did. And so I really learned what it was like to work in and lead a feedback culture. So I'm very grateful to my psychologist in that period of being CEO because I think the combination of that time with my experience in law firms and, and on boards and things like that really means I can bring it all together, my head and my heart, and don't always get it right, that's for sure. Nobody gets it all right. So since then, you've had a wide range of non-executive director roles. You've taught at a university level, you've written two books, you write a weekly newspaper column. How the heck do you fit all that in? (laughs) I don't know, JR. I don't know. I love what I do. I'm working on my third book now. I just, I think we just just wrote the second one. I, I know. I'm a glutton. I love it. I love the researching and the writing. I do a lot of keynote speaking around the world. Yeah. I'm living, I mean, I just turned 50. I did just in a few months ago. So I'm living a life of purpose that I'm really enjoying. And yeah. it feels like a bit of the culmination of everything I've done up to now. So yeah, yeah. it's happy days. Yeah. I mean, there's something for your kids are in their 20s, as you mentioned, my kids are in their 20s, one's a bit older. And the thing is, when they're out of the house, like all of a sudden you find that you've got all this extra time on your hands, you know, there's no more (laughs) driving them to sports practices and going to plays and concerts and all of those things. And this is what you get to make of your 50s when your kids are out of the nest. 
It really is a fabulous time. And I just have to watch that I keep filling it. So I just fill it and fill it and fill it. And I do need to make more time for a bit of space to be thinking and and planning and writing. But um, I get too excited. There's always something (laughs) new around the corner. So when you look back, would you say that you've been more opportunistic or intentional about the career choices that you've made? I'm going to answer that I've been intentionally opportunistic. So I definitely have always been someone who believes in saying yes to opportunities. And so there's some intention around that. You know, if something comes along, I'm really mindful of thinking, okay, I don't know where this is going to lead, but I'm prepared to say yes. I have always had a broader plan until recently. So even throughout my early 20s and 30s and 40s, I had a bit of a five-year, this is a vision of where I'd like to go, but that often changed or else I'd meet it too early and I'd have to sort of change and create. So I've been intentional and I've been opportunistic. What are the strengths that you've drawn on consistently over the years? I am a real doer. You asked how I fit it all in. I think one of my strengths is just being able to do a lot and Mm. to enjoy doing a lot. It's funny though, as we're getting a little older, gosh, age is becoming a theme of our podcast today. There's part of me thinking, I don't need to go at a million miles an hour all the time now. I'd quite like to just maybe (laughs) let's just halve that. But I'm finding that hard to slow down because I just love what I'm doing. So I think that drive and that ambition, not for ambition's sake, but to actually just achieve more and and make a big impact where you can and make a positive impact as you do, that definitely has driven me. What have you had to work hardest on developing? Patience. Hmm. Um, I think I like to see things happen far too quickly. It's not realistic I think as a leader, that was something that became a challenge where you're thinking too many steps ahead. And I see this with leaders I work with now, that for them, the answer is crystal clear, yet they forget the fact that it's not for everyone else. And so I know as a leader, that was something I really had to work on in bringing everyone along with me. And that would mean operating at a pace that was sustainable for everyone else. And I think leaders, we need to really monitor that. It's not a badge of you know being a great leader if you're burning everyone out along the way or burning yourself out. Yeah. So that's definitely, yeah, an area that for my life has been a recurring theme. Somebody I used to work for described that we're all trying to be patiently impatient. That makes sense. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, that's like, till the day I die, I suspect. Yeah. It's like being intentionally opportunistic. Yes. <laughs> yeah family aside, because that's too easy a choice. Who or what inspires you? That's like asking, you know, who's a real role model or a mentor. I've always had a buffet of people that inspire Mm. me because there's no one person who might think, okay, you've got everything right. All of us have areas that I wouldn't come to me for advice on. And so I think when I look at who inspires me or who's been a role model, you know, I can't list them all, but there are a wide range of people, whether they're in national world leaders or they're someone in my local community, there's just people that I observe and think I'd love to be able to do that aspect that you do so well, well myself. Aside from the book that you're working on, what else is ahead for you over the next few years? I'm definitely excited to be sort of doing much more on the world stage. So hopefully you'll see me in a city near you sometime soon. 
So I've got lots of different opportunities I'm doing internationally and continue to writing, to write and to speak and partnering with other organizations about, you know, what it means to be a modern leader. Any last advice you'd want our audience to take away? Say yes to opportunities. Honestly, back to your original question, I definitely think you just don't know where they'll take you and say yes anyway and and see. Yeah. Yeah. Good advice to close on. Thanks for doing this. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Kristen for joining me today to cover her new book, Head and Heart, The Art of Modern Leadership, her own career journey and what she's learned along the way. If you're looking to be a stronger leader or just a better professional, visit pathwise.io. And if you'd like more regular career insights, you can become a Pathwise member. Basic membership is free. You can also sign up on the website for our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and TikTok. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to Career Sessions, Career Lessons. We hope the nuggets of wisdom shared today help guide your path to the successful career of your dreams. This podcast series is part of Pathwise.io, which is here to help you live the career you want. We provide a comprehensive mix of career and professional development events, insights, tools, and exercises backed by a group of leading coaches and other career management experts. If you aspire to something more or just something different in your career, join us at Pathwise.io. You can find us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter. See you again on the next episode.